Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 87, Does the Web Have Buddha Nature? This week we are joined by CEO and founder of Twine.com and longtime Sokjin practitioner, Nova Spivak. In this episode, Nova launches into a discussion on the intersection between Buddhist practice, artificial intelligence, cognitive science, and the future of the World Wide Web. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. We're back with another episode, and today I'm particularly excited because the Geek-O-Meter is going to get turned up a lot. I mean, past 11. So, of course, we'll have some Buddhist conversation today. But we're also going to talk about a super awesome web service application that Vince and I got into the beta testing early on. And it's one of the coolest apps that we've seen. So we have the CEO and uh, co-founder of that application on today. Yes, uh, that's Nova Spivak. Thank you, Nova, for joining us. Thank you. Yeah. Glad to be here. Yes. And as Ryan was mentioning, you're the um, CEO and founder of a company called Radar Networks out of the Bay Area. And the first product that he was mentioning is called Twine, which you can find at twine.com. It's a new service that helps people track their interests using semantic web and collective intelligence, which we'll get into. But the really interesting thing is that Nova is also a 20-year Tibetan Buddhist practitioner. And we're really interested in talking about some of the intersects between these two areas of his life, uh, semantic web, web 3.0, as it's called sometimes, and then Tibetan Buddhist theory and practice on the other hand. So Nova, I know a little bit about your tech background, but not so much about your background with Tibetan Buddhism. So I was wondering if you could tell us and our listeners a little bit about your history with that. Well, um, actually, when I was a kid growing up in the Boston area, uh, Lama Gompa, who was one of the first Nyingma Lamas to teach uh, Dzogchen in the West, actually uh, came and stayed in my house when I was young. That was my first experience to Tibetan Buddhism. My sort of live-in nanny was one of his students. Hmm. And then uh, when I got a little older, I uh, met Norbu Rinpoche in Paris, which was kind of interesting. And we had a question and answer session and sort of a, a philosophical debate, and I couldn't understand a word he was saying. I was completely confused. And course, that made me very interested in what he was talking about because, you know, I hadn't really come across much philosophy that I, I could not understand at all. And, uh, you know, Dzogchen philosophy was way beyond me at that time. So I got interested, more and more interested in Buddhism. So that was while I was still just a teenager in junior high school. Uh, when I got to college at Oberlin, um, I ended up studying cognitive science through the philosophy department. And the more that I started exploring cognitive science, the more it became clear to me that you know, the crux of the matter comes down to consciousness and, and what is consciousness, what is the mind. And most cognitive scientists are really interested in how the mind works. I really don't care very much about how the mind works. I'm more curious about what it is. Hmm, interesting. And I started studying artificial intelligence and trying to build expert systems. And of course, the more I did that, the more interesting consciousness became because it's just one of these things which isn't so difficult to simulate, um, let alone really even imagine. And so as I worked on that, of course, I started going more into the source materials and still in the sutra tradition, 
um, and Abhidharma and different different traditions to try to find some understanding of consciousness that was better than what we have in the West. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Western philosophy is extremely primitive with regards to the mind. I mean, you, you know, maybe we can you can trace it back all the way to the Greeks, but you know, some of the more recent thinking, you know, goes back to Descartes. It's just very primitive. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, in the Eastern traditions, including Advaita Vedanta, and of course, uh, Buddhist philosophy, we've got at least 2,500 years, if not more, of tradition of dialectic debate and, and actual research, reproducible, experimental results, if you will. You know, do this practice, you will get this result. You can verify it for yourself. In college, I managed to convince the philosophy department to give me credit for some of that. <laughs> and then a- after college, uh, I went to a space industry graduate program in Japan. And when that finished, I went around the world for a year, just sort of backpacking. And I ended up in Nepal, where I um, enrolled in the Kopan Monastery Introduction to Tibetan Buddhism course, which is about a, th- a one-month-long intensive Lamrim course mm-hmm. um, with Lama Zopa. So I took that course, and that really blew my mind. It was an incredible experience. I mean, you know, tremendous amount of meditation and teaching every day. We're doing at least 12 to, you know, 15 hours of practice in various forms and silence, except for one hour a day of being able to talk. Right. And it was just a really amazing experience. So that became the organizing principle for the rest of my trip through Asia. So I ended up after that spending, you know, I spent many months in Nepal doing Buddhism. And then I went to India and did um, three months of, of retreat there with, and studied in Dharamsala with a whole bunch of different lamas. And I, I was still primarily Galukpa at that time, but I was very, very interested in Dzogchen because, you know, the Galukpas don't mention consciousness very much except as, a, you know, one of the things they negate. Whereas, you know, in the older translation schools, uh, the Nyingma and the Kagyu schools, they really talk a lot about Buddha nature, uh, Rigpa, the nature of mind and so forth. I got more and more interested in Nyingma and Kagyu, ended up studying with a whole bunch of different lamas, spent a lot of time studying with a Bumpo Lama named Lopan Tenzin Namdak, who's one of the greatest living Dzogchen masters. Also ended up studying with Pena Rinpoche mm-hmm. and did about, uh, I think I did four or five years of summer retreats with him. Nice. Um, and then I ended up studying with my main lama who's living in Tibet now, who's not a lama I can mention because of safety reasons. So it's a kind of strange thing. You spent so much time pursuing um, these practices. And at the same time, like you're saying, you were studying cognitive psychology and uh, artificial intelligence. And clearly you're a big player in some of the early web companies. You're part of the mm-hmm. uh, Earth Web, I believe. That yeah, I started, started Earth Web in 94. was one of the first web companies. Yeah, it's an interesting point. So I'm kind of wondering what brought you or what keeps you in the web world and, and, and not just going in- off and being a monk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's tempting, believe me. Uh, there are several things that are keeping me from being a monk. You know, one is is I really like my girlfriend. Um, <laughs> <laughs> another is that I, I think I can be of more service to the Dharma at this point in my life by making some money and, and supporting uh, various causes. You know, I think that right. the Dharma needs people who are able to be successful and then provide funding. And that's a val- valuable form of service. And so a big part of my motivation for being in the business world is I seem to have this ability to build companies. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I really want to turn that to some good use eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I have been able to, to help with a lot of different charitable projects in the last uh, 10 years. And that's been extremely satisfying, yeah. um, you know, and I hope that I can do more of that. So that's one way I rationalize it. The other way that I think about it is that 
there actually is a pretty deep connection between Buddhism, cognitive science, and the web, mm-hmm. in that they are all fundamentally concerned with the mind uh, in different ways. So, you know, Buddhism starts with your personal experience and understanding your own mind. And then, you know, by transforming yourself, you are then able to help others, right? Right. Um, in cognitive science, it really trying to understand the mind in general. And I think the West needs a lot of help there. We are so far behind. You know, we are so focused on the physical, material world and explaining everything in a sort of uh, materialist, logical, scientific worldview. And we are, we're missing the other half, the subjective mm-hmm. side, the, ex- the experiential side, which is, and we'll talk about this more in this interview, but, you know, sure. it's equally important. In fact, more fundamental. And so that's just completely missing from our entire culture, which is mm-hmm. a big problem with our culture. So, of course, that's very interesting. From the perspective of the web, I view the web as the early stages of a global brain and ultimately a global mind. Um, and I think we can, we'll be able to learn a lot about our own minds from the web, and we may be able to make the global mind better from our understanding of our own minds from, and from Buddhism and some other areas where there, some insights might be helpful in the future to making the world as a whole a smarter place. And so I see some, some connections on different levels between these. And, you know, ultimately, I guess one thing I've learned, you know, in, in my path through Buddhism is that uh, this notion that you need to renounce the world and, and live off in a cave in order to make progress in your, in your Dharma practice is a kind of extreme view. Mm. And, of course, it's very helpful to go on retreat and spend periods of time in retreat, and I'm a big advocate of that. But I actually think that if you can't practice in the world, what good is your practice? Mm-hmm. What's, you know, if you can't actually have your worldly life um, somehow be, be integrated with your Dharma practice and, and your view, then you know, what good is all that practice if it's some esoteric ivory tower kind of thing? Right. What we need is to be able to bring it into the world and... And so, even though it's not easy, and some, it's often feels, you know, it can feel somewhat schizophrenic to have these two sides. I think it's really important to try to find a way to reconcile that, and mm. and to and to not go off and live in a cave. Nice. And one of the ways that right now you're bringing that into the world is through this product, Twine. And I was interested yeah. in uh, exploring that a little more. And it's related to something called the semantic web. I was wondering if right. you could tell us a little bit about what the semantic web is. Sure. So um, Twine is like a social network, but it's focused on tracking and keeping up with your interests. Uh, so it's based on this notion of collective intelligence where you, you join together with a group of other people who share an interest, and then everybody sort of helps to scour the web to find the interesting stuff. They put it into Twine, and then Twine distributes it to the rest of the group. So it's a service for harnessing the power of many, if you will. Mm-hmm. And it's powered by the semantic web, as well as many other forms of artificial intelligence. The semantic web is a new generation of web technology that's based on helping machines understand the meaning or rather the semantics of the content of the web. So the semantic web is really about embedding uh, metadata, that is data about the data, into the content of the web that makes the web more understandable by by software. Now the reason that's important and, and entwined the way we use it is that it when you put content into Twine, any kind of bookmark or web page, anything you find, Twine analyzes the page. It actually reads it, and it adds these tags to, 
so that it understands what is this page about, you know, what companies, what people, what places, and what other concepts is this about. And it then links it to a network of other related things in Twine and then starts making recommendations. So uh, we use the semantic web in Twine to uh, learn about your interests and, and ultimately to help you find content that relates to your interests. Nice. So it sounds and, like the semantic web is a, kind of a more intelligent web of sorts. Yeah. Yeah, the semantic web, so I see the web developing um, as a kind of brain, a distributed brain around the web. The, the basic wires you could think of as the fibers, the nerves of the brain. Now we're putting the web into it, and that is really the learning. That's the knowledge base. That's the content. of. That's what the brain is thinking. Mm. So the web is the thing that the brain is, the global brain is thinking. And, you know, web pages are like thoughts and the connections between them are these associative associations or associative links between thoughts. It's like associative memory. You know, when you remember this famous uh, Freudian, it's called a Rorschach print. You know, they show you this ink blot and then um, you, you have to make free associations from what that is. Right. The mind is an associative machine. You know, if I mention, you know, something like um, your bedroom, right, you're going to have all kinds of thoughts. Right, those are associations. That's how the mind actually works, and the web is starting to to resemble that more and more. Now, the semantic web makes that network of associations uh, richer. It's almost like in digital photography when you add resolution. When every year digital cameras mm-hmm. get more megapixels, mm-hmm. you know. So now we're at like I don't know what we're at a large number of megapixels. I just bought a twelve megapixel camera. Well, the semantic web is kind of like a twelve megapixel web. With a semantic web, you can actually triangulate. You can, you can say, you know, I remember this, I remember this, I remember this, and then it will find all the things that are mutually related to those. Mm, I see. And that's kind of, that's how memory actually works. So the semantic web is the beginning of a web that resembles uh, the associative uh, structure of the brain and the mind, the way the mind actually thinks. Gotcha. And do you see this, uh, do you see the web evolving or growing more complex over time? Do you think it actually, as you're mentioning global brain and global mind, which I assume are two mm-hmm. sides of, of the same thing, and do you do you actually see the web becoming sentient, so to speak? Uh, I have pretty strong feelings about that question. Okay, so good. <laughs> I think I think I think the web is becoming intelligent mm-hmm. um, in a you know distributed fashion. Sentient is a very particular thing, and I don't think the web is is becoming sentient, and I don't think it ever will, because. From my study of Buddhism, sentience is a very particular and special thing. Ultimately, sentience comes from Buddha nature, right? It's awareness. And it's, it's not something which uh, I believe we can synthesize. It is fundamental and it's empty. It's a permanent, ultimate phenomenon, right? So the daily kind of dualistic consciousness that we have is from a Buddhist perspective, a fabrication. It's an illusion. It's a bunch of thoughts and other mental and sensory experiences that are appearing in the space of our fundamental ultimate awareness, which is empty. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we misapprehend that and personalize it, call it I, and, you know, the, the scope um, is constricted because we do that. Uh, but it's fundamentally a non-dualistic uh, phenomena, if you will, that uh, is unborn and doesn't come from us. So the notion that we could make software or any kind of machine, let alone the web, 
Um, and suddenly, at some magical level of chaos or complexity, it will suddenly become sentient. It's, that's a fiction. Instead, if there is going to be sentience in machines or, or on the web, it's going to come from humans. We are the sentience mm-hmm. of the web. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so what I actually think is happening is we're forming a, a symbiotic superorganism. So symbiosis is, of course, when uh, different kinds of systems, living systems, come together and they may be specialized at first. They sort of help each other and uh, they give up some of their generality and begin to co-evolve. And then a superorganism is exemplified by things like the social insects, like uh, bees and ant colonies and termite colonies. Um, they're organisms that are comprised, actually, of other organisms. And in fact, the individual organisms can't necessarily survive or reproduce without the rest of the colony. Uh, in the case of a beehive, you know, individual bees cannot reproduce. The colony as a whole is what reproduces. Mm. So that is one of the reasons that a beehive is actually a superorganism instead of just a bunch of separate things. And yet you, you wouldn't be able to say the superorganism is itself conscious, but you could say that the individuals within it are conscious in this really... Inter- right. interpolated well, it's a very way. interesting thing. Right. So the individual bees are sentient. Right. The colony as a whole does behave as a single intelligent system, but there's not some separate disembodied homunculus, you know, some kind of self that sits there in the beehive that emerges and lives on top of all the bees. Right. Right. If you look for the self in the beehive, you know, you don't find a self of the hive as a whole. If you look inside of any individual bee, you also aren't going to find a self in any bee. So the interesting thing about you know self and sentience is they're really two different things, mm. right? Sentience does not have a self. And in fact, if you look for self, you don't find it. When you look for sentience, you don't actually find sentience, but you don't find the absence of any sentience either, right? And so from the Heart Sutra, you know, when they say there's no mind, et cetera, et cetera, it's not that there's nothing. You don't end up with a nihilistic nothingness. On the other hand, you don't end up with a, a tangible, graspable self or sentience either, right? So when you do this exploration, which, you know, from a Nyingma perspective, you look for the mind and eventually you don't find it, you, you don't end up in a state of a nihilistic, well, there's nothing. You end up in a state of empty, spacious sentience, right? That's the actual nature of mind. So from a kind of global brain, global mind perspective, we actually may create a self, a collective self, which is just a big collective illusion, Mm -hmm. which could exist, you know, on multiple sites or one website, or it could be something we all participate in. But the sentience aspect will not exist on the web. And if we look for it, you know, we are the sentient beings. We are the vehicles of the sentience in the system. But if you if you even try to find the sentience in any individual, you can't find it. So sentience is not synth- synthesizable, but self is. Mm, so I see I, the distinction will, you're making. Yeah, we will have a collective self, and we're forming one. And I think you can you can see examples of that. There are sites today which really reflect back the state of the system to everyone else. There are things like Google Zeitgeist, which will show the most popular search terms on Google. Um, that's giving you a sense of what the world is interested in. There are sites like Dig, which rate the you know interest in particular news stories. There are polling sites like Nielsen and others, you know, Gallup, that will give you a sense of who's watching what or who thinks what. Those are primitive measures of the collective self. The media as a whole is a reflection of the collective self. 
And I think in coming years, we will be making that more concrete so that there really will be sites which people will belong to that will will give them a sense of collective identity. There may be a sort of collective self for all the Republicans and then a collective self for all the Democrats. And there might be a collective self for Americans versus a collective self for French people. Hmm. These will be sites that kind of reflect the, the identity, the current focus of attention, the interests, the sentiment about various things, the state of that set of people. That's a kind of self. And it's very similar to what the self in our own self-construct does. It measures our internal and our external environment. It gives us a representation of of what we are doing in relation to the world. So that's happening, and I see that forming now. The sentience piece is a mystery and always will be, and that's good. There should be some mysteries. Cool. And that's why, you know, that mystery is what leads people eventually to enlightenment. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.